Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And I'm very pleased today to have two guests who are going to talk with us. The first is Dr. Kim Dunleavy from the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida. Welcome, Dr. Dunleavy. Thank you very much, Dr. Jetty. We really are excited about being able to talk to you about the the article today. Our second guest is Dr. Dawn Magnuson. She's on faculty in the physical therapy program in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado. Welcome, Dr. Magnuson. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm really, really excited to talk about your article. It's entitled Embedding Population Health in Physical Therapist Professional Education. As you know, it's a topic that I uh, am really interested in, and I really enjoyed uh, your article. Let let me start um, in talking about, in your perspective, you make the case that intentional integration of population health principles into PT education is going to be critical to preparing future PTs. Can you talk a little bit about why you think this is so important for the future of our profession? Dr. Jenny, as you as you pointed out earlier when you did your keynote speech, um, you know the societal changes that are are needed to to really address some of the problems. Um, that we're facing are so widespread and uh, the the impact that we can have as a profession is critical. And so to develop the next generation of leaders, I think we need to be starting from the ground up to be able to support our students and developing a culture and a, um, uh, a mission to really think about the bigger picture, the social determinants of health, the elements that are related to population health from a prevention standpoint, as much as the small details of uh, addressing problems after they've already happened. So it's much more about how do we prepare our students to manage, to make change and to transform society. I was just going to build on what Kim said. um, And it, in my mind, it really has to do with kind of this shift in leading causes of mortality and morbidity that we've seen, you know, over the last several generations. And so, you know, certainly when our profession was founded, it was in response to, you know, soldiers returning home from war or individuals who'd experienced polio and things like that. And so really our focus was on that tertiary care, that rehabilitation. Now we see, you know, individuals with more chronic health conditions like cardiovascular disease, diabetes that really necessitate us taking a broader view at the factors, to your point, Kim, that really influence the health of these individuals. So really thinking about those social determinants of health, kind of our conditions of daily living, as well as those structural forces, those educational, economic, and other policies that influence our conditions of daily living. And so I think that's where I you know, I, I love all things population health. And I think that's where those population health frameworks can really under, help us understand some of the complexity in those outcomes, but also those determinants that influence um, health. So just to build a little bit on, on what Kim was talking about. You challenge the educational community in your piece that 
we need to apply our expertise in movement for our unique contributions to population health. How do we go about doing that? You know, from my point of view, as someone who's spent his entire career in the field of public health, you're clearly preaching to the choir. But how do we go about doing this? I think that's a key piece. It's often students come back and and push back at learning about public health, about learning about nutrition or any of the other factors such as obesity that may contribute to a, a large portion of the chronic health conditions that we're actually facing. Um, but movement is an area that we do have expertise in. It's an area that we are underutilizing sometimes when we really think about our own contributions to medical care. And it, that has progressively been more of a focus through the APTA initiatives, et cetera. But I think the next step is to really look at it from the prevention side and add to what other medical professions are actually providing, uh, refer to, work with them interprofessionally and interprofessional team. But movement is what we do. And I'm not sure that we always come up with that early enough and strongly enough within the prevention realm. Dawn, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Kim. I, I really view you know, movement quantity and quality are such significant predictors of future mortality and morbidity. You know, we use things like grip strength, gait speed, the ability to get up from the floor as, you know, kind of these represent emerging key vital statistics. And again, we have such a rich history in supporting people and, and helping folks recover their function. Um, I think if we put as much energy and passion into keeping people moving and keeping people healthy, I think there's just unlimited potential for our, um, for our profession uh, in those spaces. And again, movement doesn't happen in isolation. It has to do with our nutrition, our sleep, those social determinants. And so again, um, I think I've been talking with other colleagues about that. I think in the PT profession, we can kind of put movement, physical activity at the center of those things, recognizing all of these, again, multiple determinants that influence movement. But yeah, if we could work just as hard to keep people moving, keep people healthy, and still supporting them, you know, if they have an injury or sustain an illness and help them recover. I think, yeah, again, there's just so much untapped potential in that space. Can I, can I add to that too? And I didn't mean to say that we're not doing that. I think there's just so much more that we can do. Mm -hmm. And I think when we look at what we have to offer, very often being able to work even with, you know, patients in the clinic for, over a period of time, that change can be um, really a, a critical component if we start it early enough. So it's not enough just to be able to give somebody a home exercise program. If we're working on a progressive change towards being more active as a whole, not just for a single impairment or a single diagnosis that somebody's being referred for, but the bigger picture of all of the other elements that are contributing to why they're not moving, um, you know, the, the, I think that would be a significant change in maybe how we're looked at as professions as well, professionals as well. Um, if we do that, just that little extra piece of finding out, you know, how somebody could be active in their environment. What, what are the, 
uh, environmental barriers that they might have so that they could walk in the parks or um, find an alternative for them to be able to manage their surrounding living circumstances so that they could increase their movement. Um, that is an untapped potential area that we could contribute. How do you respond to educators who will express concern regarding adding population health content to the curriculum when it's already extremely overcrowded and limited faculty expertise in this area? How do you respond to those concerns? I've heard them from people from time to time when I talk about population health. Alan, I think um, as our team actually wrote this paper, and we just to point out that this was a, a really amazing team of people with expertise in the area, but also just a passion for this topic. And this was an, a topic that came up repeatedly. I mean, we really did think about this from the perspective of educators don't have enough time. They do have a lot to cover. And so some of the options that we provided as suggestions, and it's by no means a complete list or, or what is out there, but some examples of how more active learning strategies can be integrated across the curriculum, um, where it wouldn't require a complete curriculum review necessarily. It could be, but, and it could be built from the beginning, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so from the first question, I think it is about feeding some opportunities for students to learn throughout that is much more impactful. And that does get to the next piece that you talked about in terms of educator expertise. And I, I actually don't believe that educators need huge amounts of, of change in their own knowledge base to really embrace population health. I think everybody in their expert field has elements that they could emphasize. Just as an example, if you look at um, somebody who's teaching exercise physiology, you know, bringing in elements that could change if you are moving is part of exercise physiology. Uh, the, the bigger piece and putting it in perspective is maybe more on the educational strategy side. Um, and I'm going to use one of my colleagues as an example who teaches exercise physiology, but then linked his coursework to some of the service learning activities that we were doing where we were promoting walking in the community. So it's a link versus necessarily changing everything that you're teaching. It's just putting it in context and emphasizing and encouraging students to take that extra step. Uh, Dawn, do you have thoughts on? Yeah, I would. I completely agree with you. And I, I do think we need to take a little bit closer look at our curricula and ask ourselves whether the content we teach really positions our students to meet the evolving needs of society. Um, we know that so many of our clients come in with these just multiple comorbidities and chronic conditions. Um, and I think we really do our clients a disservice if we don't attempt to understand and address those multiple factors um, contributing to those conditions. And um, so building on that, I think there is an opportunity, um, whether folks want to do a, com a you know, complete curricular overhaul and revision, um, or 
and <laughs> um, find just maybe more creative ways to integrate some of this uh, these population health concepts. And, you know, just one example from our program that we're just starting to roll out is um, we're working to create a, a community of cases whereby students get to know members in this kind of community that we're creating, um, including their individual health behaviors, those social determinants of health, and some of those structural barriers as well. And so these factors then are taken into consideration during their clinical track courses um, as they complete, you know, work through the examination, uh, think about prognosis, and also work to co-create a plan of care with that client. And so again, that's a way we're working to more intentionally integrate some of these concepts um, into some of their more, again, clinically focused courses. I, I like the way that you're emphasizing the need for curriculum to evolve as the needs of the population changes. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And, and I think you both are really making a very good points uh, in that regard. So let's, let's talk about how, how to go, strategies for accomplishing what you're advocating. Uh, Dr. Dunleavy, you've talked about the first strategy in your most recent remarks, and that is trying to thread population health throughout the curriculum. In your article, you uh, talk about two other strategies. Uh, the second is concentrating population health in specific courses, which is really a, a more traditional way in which we you know, incorporate new content into the curriculum. And then the third way you talk about is um, creating elective courses or independent study in the area of population health. I got the impression from reading your piece that you think the first uh, strategy is probably the most effective. Is that, is that fair? And if so, why? Um, I think... Repetition is always good. And I think having the content supported by multiple professors hits different people and it hits uh, different students at different times so that it doesn't seem like it's only one instructor where it's, that's their content and they that's their passion. It becomes a more widespread culture and intent of the entire group. So I do think that is more effective. I think there's, we did point out two curricula where that was being done from, from the beginning. And one of our authors um, or a team of authors is actually creating another uh, program where it is intentionally built in from the beginning, which is probably the easiest in established programs and revamping programs. It's a little harder, but um it doesn't downplay the importance of having an individual course or even just starting with individual activities. Um, you know, I think some of the interprofessional activities really emphasize these types of concepts, partly because it does cross across different professions. And so sometimes that's an ideal opportunity to start embedding the, uh, the surrounding context of, of patient care. Um, but I, I wouldn't downplay starting off small and building up on it. And I think that's very important when, when anybody is trying to make any changes. Curricular changes can be difficult to do. They often take, do take time, and it really takes the leadership to be able to make that happen. So I don't know, Dawn, what your thoughts are. 
I'm just smiling. The, the listeners can't see that, but um, I was just reflecting on my own experience where uh, when I first came to Colorado, we, um, it, was, it was amazing because we have a, a three credit health promotion and wellness course that happened at the very end of our curriculum. And it was amazing that we had that course um, it was also a little bit challenging because students got to that course having gone through much of their uh, other didactic curriculum, um, and, and that content then felt outside of our scope of practice. It felt kind of like icing on the cake versus like what we actually needed, what they felt like they really needed to learn. And so it always felt kind of outside of our curriculum. We still have that course, but we also have, we now have bookends. So now um, we were able to meet with the faculty, and I think you're exactly right, Kim, that faculty buy-in is really important, where we added kind of a one-credit foundational health promotion and wellness at the very beginning of the program to kind of lay the foundation for these concepts. I mentioned before those community of cases, so we're using those and other very intentional places where we can integrate these concepts throughout the program. And then we still have that three credit health promotion wellness at the end, but that's really where we're focusing on putting all of these things together, really supporting folks, working through primary, secondary, tertiary prevention, health promotion, and then also starting to look at community health. So we still have that kind of separate course, um, but now that we have that foundation at the beginning, we're able to thread that content through and then wrap up with, you know, kind of the big picture at the end. So um, just in my own experience, it was really challenging just having that one course kind of, you know, plopped at the end, if you will. <laughs> um, it just felt disconnected from anything. And I think, you know, for programs who are wanting, you know, it's, it's hard to go through and make major revisions. I think sometimes if we're just more intentional and explicit about what it is we're doing and the concepts we're trying to um, impart on our students, I think that can make a big difference. So a lot of programs will be talking about social determinants of health or maybe some of those structural factors. If we, just by naming those things, I think um, can really get us to start wrapping our head around the importance of these topics in our programs. You know, one, I'll go ahead, Dr. Dunleavy. Sorry, to add, just to add to that too, and I think Dawn brings up a very good example, but uh, we are, we actually do have multiple elements across our curriculum, and the I think the student emphasis and the student focus, depending on the particular semester, can be overwhelmed. I mean, we, you talked about uh, instructor overload, but student overload and and burnout and concentration is often directed towards what they look at as being the most important courses, the most challenging courses at any particular time frame, And so there's always the risk of if you have a course that they perceive as, well, it's not as hard as the anatomy or it's not as hard, you know, I want to do musculoskeletal coursework, therefore I'm going to put all my emphasis in that one area. If it's distributed and it's constantly reinforced it makes it much easier if you've got one course in one semester and that happens to be their most difficult semester chances are it's going to get pushed down on the priority list as well so um i don't think that's going to change i think the emphasis needs to slowly develop some students are really involved with it and others gradually over time start to realize how important it is so um, i think we need to hit hit both sides you know, another strategy you talk about in your article for uh, addressing population health in the curriculum is what you refer to as integrated clinical education. 
Can you talk about its role? Sure, Dawn, do you want to start off on this one? Yeah, so I think when I think of integrated clinical education, um, what I think of is really looking at, so we've just gone through and changed our interprofessional education. We now call it integrated <laughs> um, collaboration. And so those are the kinds of places I see. And we touched on this earlier in terms of, you know, the importance of that interprofessional collaboration, um, that intersectoral collaboration. And so really um, developing opportunities for students during their clinical education experiences to you know, start putting some of these various different pieces together. Um, and so um, an example, it's not technically clinical education, but it's an opportunity through our um, interprofessional student-run pro bono clinic is for students um, to get an opportunity to really see these things come to life. And so they're working as part of an interprofessional team. Um, they're working with care coordinators who also complete uh, or administer social needs screening of all of the clients to really understand Again, some of those um, social determinants of health that might be influencing uh, clinical outcomes. And so students are able to see very directly how some of those pieces integrate with what they're doing in terms of practice. And so an example is, you know, for clients who maybe are considering developing a certain plan of care, now that we're considering some of these other social kind of economic and financial factors for this client, we need to take those into consideration as well. And so many of those get wrapped into the official plan of care where it's not just, you know, kind of that home exercise program. It includes things like, you know, connecting somebody to uh, an employment resource center or connecting someone who maybe is experiencing uh, housing insecurity, you know, to help support them in those spaces. And so those things are integrated directly into the plan of care for that individual. And so, you know, working to provide those sorts of opportunities in those clinical education experiences. So again, students are developing the tools to really wrap all of these kind of complex pieces together in real time as they're working with clients. I think to add to that, Dawn, too, is that the integrated clinical experiences, which are distributed throughout the curriculum, fits the same threaded type of approach and also builds in what we, you know, the situated learning, which is really learning in context. And the population health really is about context. It's, it's about the surrounding elements that are impacting somebody's basic activities of daily living, their participation. So using sort of the ICF model as, as an example too. But I think the integrated clinical education experiences from a practical standpoint are more realistic than hoping that we would find multiple different places where um, population health is a major focus for full-time clinical experiences. And I think it supports the learning as you go. Um, I do think one of the, the hottest parts, which sort of moves into a different area, but is that the students need to see some of these concepts being modeled by clinicians and being, um, as Dawn said, having the opportunity to integrate it, but they've got to see how it works in real life in an effective way. And so that's one of the challenging points. There's plenty of opportunities, but it does need to be not only realistic, which is sometimes some of the challenges related to insurance requirements or time or anything else, but it needs to be the clinician who is taking this on as part of their roles and responsibilities in order for our students to really develop those 
um, that same importance level uh, in their own minds and, and development. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Dr. Dunleavy, because uh, it's not uncommon to see a lag between what's going on in the clinic as compared to what you're teaching in your educational programs. Um, that was the case when I came into the field, and I've seen that throughout my career. And it's a real challenge because mm-hmm. students will always come back and say, well, that's not how they're doing it out mm-hmm. in the real world. Um, and it, I think it's a, also a challenge in the United States where we're not particularly population health oriented. We're very sickness oriented. Um, do you find that creates additional challenges for what you're trying to do in your programs, your educational programs? I mean, absolutely. And, and you know, it's it's a multitude of, of factors with this, too, is that, I mean, I do think, and going back to the interprofessional component, I think there's a lot of opportunities to shadow other professions who are doing this very effectively. Um, but is that considered clinical education? Um, there are plenty of opportunities to really be actively involved in community um resource type uh, generation, et cetera, but that is not looked at as clinical education. So you're checking off the boxes for your curriculum, your accreditation, your what the students feel is important and what they think their education should look like and their priorities. And then you've got this other bigger item surrounding all of it. So um, it is challenging and it requires a lot of flexibility and and being able to be creative with some of those the current structures that are impacting our education and so we didn't in, in a way I don't know that we actually covered that in the paper but the creativity were and having options like these smaller activities that have been developed the people that have done that are not only passionate but they're creative and they've gone out and found places where they can really use what they've got in their particular community rather than feeling like it's an overwhelming, I've got to go and learn something, how to do this. It's very exciting, I have to say, to hear you talk about these efforts within the physical therapy curriculum. It just, I find it very exciting. Last question. You're you're doing this work, uh, doctors uh, Dunleavy and Magnuson, in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. How has the pandemic affected your your work in this area? I think in some it's been challenging. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, as far as from every educator, clinician, student on a on a broader time level, delivery of content, what is available, it has been challenging. And obviously, from a personal side, there's so many different components from family to individual illness that have impacted everybody. I think we've had to change some of the way that we deliver content. And in some ways that's highlighted the social determinants of health more so. So just as an example, we started doing telehealth options for our pro bono clinic. And we also did telehealth for supporting our participants in some of the community engagement activities that we have. For example, we had, we had this uh, walking program and exercise programs. We've, we, we switched that to de- delivering by telehealth. 
what it has done in some ways has really pointed out some of those differences. So for example, in telehealth, you're now seeing the actual environment that the person is working in. On the other hand, there's some people that have been completely cut out of that because of the technology and they don't have the technology. So it's changed things. And like any system that actually has a change, it has the disruption, I think, has been positive in some ways and negative in other ways. And I do hope that as we negotiate this, it will add to the importance of addressing these larger issues, such as, you know, when the vaccines started to come out, you know, were we reaching the people that really needed the vaccines? And could they actually get the places that were getting the vaccines? And some of those kind of concepts were discussion points that I think were highlighted by what was happening every day. Um, people, you know, being adversely affected in places like downtown areas where they had to take the bus to get to their job and were continuing to work, whereas other people could be online at home using Zoom. I mean, so some of the discussion items that were very topical highlighted some of the needs. It hasn't made it easier, but I do think that it has forced everybody to be more cognizant of it and how we address it in the future alongside all of these overwhelming, it, it's added one more level of complexity. Don't, sorry, I've been talking too long. Dr. Madison, anything you'd like to add? I was just going to add, Briefly, I, I was looking at my notes, Kim, and you touched on almost all the things I was going to um, highlight here. And, you know, just to emphasize, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really shined a very bright spotlight on these existing kind of fissures within our society um, that perpetuate various health disparities. And to your point, has really widened some of these health disparities. And I hope moving forward, people will continue to be aware of those things and work to you know, address those structural issues, reduce those disparities. Um, oftentimes we, we talk about this desire to go back to the way things were. I don't want us to go back to the way things were. I want us to take this as an opportunity to really learn and understand these very significant issues uh, that have you know, resulted in many of these significant and perpetual health disparities learn from these things and continue to push forward to work to reduce and eliminate some of those disparities and advance health equity. So that's kind of my takeaway from, from the pandemic. Well, I want to congratulate both of you on the work that you're doing in this area. I really think it's important to our profession and, and to our society. And I thank you both for the article and for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alan. And for, for starting all of this along the way, you know, through your, your work and what you've done over so many years. So we really appreciate it. Thanks, Kim.